A Treatise on the Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. And some speak of a great sight they have of their wickedness, who really, when the manner comes to be well examined into and thoroughly weighed, are found to have little or no convictions of conscience. They tell of a dreadful hard heart, and how their heart lies like a stone, when truly they have none of those things in their minds or thoughts wherein the hardness of men's hearts does really consist. They tell of a dreadful load and sink of sin, a heap of black and loathsome filthiness within them, when if the manner be carefully inquired into, they have not in view anything wherein the corruption of nature does truly consist, nor have they any thought of any particular thing wherein their hearts are sinfully defective, or fall short of what ought to be in them, or any exercises at all of corruption in them. And many who think also they have great convictions of their actual sins, who truly have none. They tell how their sins are set in order before them. They see them stand encompassing them round in a row with a dreadful, frightful appearance, when really they have not so much as one of the sins they have been guilty of in the course of their lives coming into view, that they are affected with the aggravations of... And if persons have had great terrors, which really have been from the awakening and convincing influences of the Spirit of God, it doth not thence follow that their terrors must needs issue in true comfort. The unmortified corruption of the heart may quench the Spirit of God, after he has been striving, by leading men to presumptuous and self-exalting hopes and joys, as well as otherwise. It is not every woman who is really in travail that brings forth a real child, but it may be a monstrous production without anything of the form or properties of human nature belonging to it. Pharaoh's chief baker, after he had lain in the dungeon with Joseph, had a vision that raised his hopes, and he was lifted out of the dungeon as well as the chief butler, but it was to be hanged. But if comforts and joys do not only come after great terrors and awakenings, but there be an appearance of such preparatory convictions and humiliations, and brought about very distinctly by such steps and in such a method as has frequently been observed in true comforts, this is no certain sign that the light and comforts which follow are true and saving, and for these following reasons, first... As the devil can counterfeit all the saving operations and graces of the Spirit of God, so he can counterfeit those operations that are preparatory to grace. If Satan can counterfeit those effects of God's Spirit which are special, divine, and sanctifying, so that there shall be a very great resemblance in all that can be observed by others, much more easily may he imitate those works of God's Spirit which are common, in which men, while they are yet his own children, are the subjects of. These works are in no wise so much above him as the others. There are no works of God that are so high and divine and above the powers of nature and out of reach of the power of all creature as those of the works of the Spirit, whereby he forms a creature in his own image and makes it to be a partaker of the divine nature. But if the devil can be the author of such resemblances of these as has been spoken of, without doubt he may of those that are of an infinitely inferior kind. And it is abundantly evident, in fact, that there are false humiliations and false submissions as well as false comforts. The venerable Solomon Stoddard observes, quote, A man may say that he can justify God however he deals with him, 
and yet not be brought off from his own righteousness. Some men justify God from a partial conviction of the righteousness of their condemnation. Conscience takes notice of their sinfulness and tells them that they may be righteously damned. Is Pharaoh who justified God, Exodus 9.27, and they give some kind of consent to it. But many times it does not continue. They have only a pang upon them that usually dies away after a little time. In quote, Stoddard's Guide to Christ. How far was Saul brought, though a very wicked man and of a haughty spirit, when he, though a great king, was brought in conviction of his sin, as it were to fall down all in tears, weeping aloud before David his own subject, and one that he had for a long time mortally hated and openly treated as an enemy, and condemn himself before him, crying out, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereof I have rewarded thee evil. And it is another time, I have sinned, I have played the fool, I have erred exceedingly. First Samuel 24, 16 and 17, and chapter 26, 21. And yet Saul seems then to have had very little of the influences of the Spirit of God, it being after God's Spirit had departed from him and given him up, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And if this proud monarch in a pang of affection was brought to humble himself so low before a subject that he hated, and still continued an enemy too, there doubtless may be appearances of great conviction and humiliation in men before God, while they yet remain enemies to him, and though they finally continue so. There is oftentimes in men who are terrified through fears of hell a great appearance of their being brought off from their own righteousness, when they are not brought off from it in all ways, although they are in many ways that are more plain and visible. They have only exchanged some ways of trusting in their own righteousness for others that are more secret and subtle. Oftentimes a great degree of discouragement as to many things they used to depend upon is taken for humiliation, and that is called a submission to God, which is no absolute submission, but has some secret bargain in it that is hard to discover. Secondly, if the operations and effects of the Spirit of God and the convictions and comforts of true converts may be sophisticated, then the order of them may be imitated. As Satan can imitate the things themselves, he may easily put them one after another in such a certain order. If the devil can make A, B, and C, it is as easy for him to put A first and B next and C next as to arrange them in a contrary order. The nature of divine things is harder for the devil to imitate than their order. He cannot exactly imitate divine operations in their nature, though his counterfeits may be very much like them in external appearance, but he can exactly imitate their order. When counterfeits are made, there is no divine power needful in order to the placing one of them first and another last. And therefore, no order or method of operations and experiences is any certain sign of their divinity. That only is to be trusted to as a certain evidence of grace, which Satan cannot do, and which it is impossible should be brought to pass by any power short of divine. Thirdly, we have no certain rule to determine how far God's own spirit may go in these operations and convictions, which in themselves are not spiritual and saving, and yet the person that is the subject of them never be converted, but fall short of salvation at last. 
There is no necessary connection in the nature of things between anything that a natural man may experience while in a state of nature and the saving grace of God's Spirit. And if there be no connection in the nature of things, then there can be no known and certain connection at all unless it be by divine revelation. But there is no revealed certain connection between a state of salvation and anything that a natural man can be the subject of before he believes in Christ. God has revealed no certain connection between salvation and any qualifications in men, but only grace and its fruits. And therefore we do not find any legal convictions or comforts following these legal convictions in any certain method or order ever once mentioned in the scripture as certain signs of grace or things peculiar to the saints, although we do find gracious operations and effects themselves so mentioned thousands of times, which should be enough with Christians who are willing to have the word of God rather than their own philosophy and experiences and conjectures as their sufficient and sure guide in all things of this nature. Fourthly, experience does greatly confirm that persons seeming to have convictions and comforts following one another in such a method and order, as is frequently observable in true converts, is no certain sign of grace. Mr. Stoddard, who had much experience with things of this nature, long ago observed that converted and unconverted men cannot be certainly distinguished by the account they give of their experience, the same relation of experiences being common to both, and that many persons have given a fair account of a work of conversion that have carried well in the eye of the world for several years, but have not proved well at last, in quote, appeal to the learned. I appeal to all those ministers in this land who have had much occasion of dealing with souls in the late extraordinary season, whether there have not been many who do not prove well, that have given a fair account of their experiences, and have seemed to be converted according to the rule, i.e., with convictions and affections succeeding distinctly and exactly, in that order and method which has been ordinarily insisted on as the order of the operations of the Spirit of God in conversion, and as they seeming to have this distinctness as to steps and method is no certain sign that a person is converted, so a being without is no evidence that a person is not converted, for though it might be made evident to a demonstration on scripture principles that a sinner cannot be brought heartily to receive Christ as his Savior who is not convinced of his sin and misery, and of his own emptiness and helplessness, and is just desert of eternal condemnation, and that therefore such convictions must be some way implied in what is wrought in his soul, yet nothing proves it to be necessary that all those things which are implied or presupposed in an act of faith in Christ must be plainly and distinctly wrought in the soul, in so many successive and separate works of the Spirit, that shall be each one plain and manifest in all who are truly converted. On the contrary, as Mr. Shepherd observes, sometimes a change made in a saint at first is like a confused chaos, so that the saints know not what to make of it. The manner of the Spirit's proceeding in them that are born of the Spirit is very often exceeding mysterious and unsearchable. We, as it were, hear the sound of it, the effect of it is discernible, but no man can tell whence it came or whither it went. And it is oftentimes as difficult to know the way of the Spirit in the new birth as in the first birth, Ecclesiastes 11.5. Thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, or how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Even so, thou knowest not the works of God that worketh all. 
The ingenerating of a principle of grace in the soul seems in Scripture to be compared to the conceiving of Christ in the womb, Galatians 4.19, and therefore the church is called Christ's mother, Canticle 3.11, and so is every particular believer, Matthew 12.49 and 50. And the conception of Christ in the womb of the Blessed Virgin by the power of the Holy Ghost seems to be a design resemblance of the conception of Christ in the soul of a believer by the power of the same Holy Ghost. And we know not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow, either in the womb or heart that conceives this holy child. The new creature may use that language in Psalm 139, 14 and 15. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. Concerning the generation of Christ, both in his person and also in the hearts of his people, it may be said, as in Isaiah 53, 8, Who can declare his generation? We know not the works of God that worketh all. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, Proverbs 25, 2, and to have his path, as it were, in the mighty waters, that his footsteps may not be known, and especially in the works of his Spirit on the hearts of men, which are the highest and chief of his works. And therefore it is said, Isaiah 40.13, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? It is to be feared that some have gone too far towards directing the Spirit of the Lord and marking out his footsteps for him, and limiting him to certain steps and methods. Experience plainly shows that God's Spirit is unsearchable and untraceable in some of the best of Christians, and the method of his operations in their conversion. Nor does the Spirit of God proceed discernibly in the steps of a particular established scheme, one half so often is imagined. A scheme of what is necessary, and according to a rule already received and established by common opinion, has a vast, though to many a very insensible, influence in forming persons' notions of the steps and method of their own experiences. I know very well what their way is, for I have had much opportunity to observe it. Very much at first, their experiences appear like a confused chaos, as Mr. Shepherd expresses it. But then those passages of their experience are picked out that have most of the appearance of such particular steps that are insisted on, and these are dwelt upon in the thoughts, and these are told of from time to time in the relation they give. These parts grow brighter and brighter in their view, and others being neglected grow more and more obscure, and what they have experienced is insensibly strained to bring all to an exact conformity to the scheme that is established. And it becomes natural for ministers who have to deal with them, and direct them that insist upon distinctness and clearness of method, to do so too. But yet there has been so much to be seen of the operations of the Spirit of God of late, that they who have had much to do with souls, and are not blinded with a sevenfold veil of prejudice, must know that the Spirit is so exceeding various in the manner of his operating, that in many cases it is impossible to trace him or find out his way. What we have principally to do with in our inquiries into our own state, or the directions we give to others, is the nature of the effect that God has brought to pass in the soul. As to the steps which the Spirit of God took to bring that effect to pass, we may leave them to Him. 
we are often in Scripture expressly directed to try ourselves by the nature of the fruits of the Spirit, but nowhere by the Spirit's method of producing them. Thomas Shepard, speaking of the soul's closing with Christ, says, quote, As a child cannot tell how a soul comes into it, nor it may be when, but when afterwards it sees and feels that life, so that he were as bad as a beast that should deny an immortal soul, so here in quote parable of the ten virgins quote if the man do not know the time of his conversion or first closing with christ the minister may not draw any peremptory conclusion from thence that he is not godly in quote solomon stoddard's guide to christ and thomas shepherd in his sound believer says do not think that there is no compunction or sense of sin wrought in the soul because you cannot so clearly discern and feel it nor the time of the working and first beginning of it i have known many that have come with their complaints that they were never humbled they never felt it so yet there it hath been and many times they have seen it by the other spectacles and bless god for it End quote. Many do greatly err in their notions of a clear work of conversion, calling that a clear work, where the successive steps of influence and method of experience are clear, whereas that indeed is the clearest work, not where the order of doing is clearest, but where the spiritual and divine nature of the work done and effect wrought is most clear. Section 9. It is no certain sign that the religious affections which persons have are such as have in them the nature of true religion, or that they are not, that they dispose persons to spend much time in religion and to be zealously engaged in the external duties of worship. This has very unreasonably of late been looked upon as an argument against the religious affections which some have had, that they spend so much time in reading, praying, singing, hearing sermons, and the like. It is plain from the scripture that it is a tendency of true grace to cause persons to delight in such religious exercises. True grace had this effect on Anna, the prophetess, Luke 2.37. She departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And grace had this effect upon the primitive Christians in Jerusalem, Acts 2.46 and 47. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God. Grace made Daniel delight in the duty of prayer, and solemnly to attend it three times a day, as it also did David, Psalm 55.17. Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray. Grace makes the saints delight in singing praises to God. Psalm 135.3 Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. Psalm 147.1 It also causes them to delight to hear the word of God preached. It makes the gospel a joyful sound to them. Psalm 89.15 It makes the feet of those who publish these good tidings to be beautiful. Isaiah 52.7 How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, and so on. It makes them love God's public worship. Psalm 26.8 Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. 
in Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 84, 1 and 2, and so on. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars are, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they will still be praising thee. Blessed is the man in whose heart are the ways of them, who, passing through the valley of Baca, go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. Verse 10, A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. This is the nature of true grace. But yet, on the other hand, the persons are disposed to abound and to be zealously engaged in the external exercises of religion, and to spend much time in them, is no sure evidence of grace, because such a disposition is found in many that have no grace. So it was with the Israelites of old, whose services were abominable to God. They attended the new moons and Sabbaths, and calling of assemblies, and spread forth their hands, and made many prayers. Isaiah 1, 12-15 So it was with the Pharisees. They made long prayers, and fasted twice a week. False religion may cause persons to be loud and earnest in prayer. Isaiah 58.4 Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to cause your voice to be heard on high. That religion which is not spiritual and saving may cause men to delight in religious duties and ordinances. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. Isaiah 58.2 They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. And they cause them to take delight in hearing the word of God preached, as it was with Ezekiel's hearers. Ezekiel 33.31-32 and 32. And they come unto thee as the people cometh. And they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. So it was with Herod. He heard John the Baptist gladly, Mark 6.20. So it was with others of his hearers. For a season they rejoiced in his light, John 5.35. So the stony ground hearers heard the word with joy. Experience shows that persons from false religion may be inclined to be exceeding abundant in the external exercises of religion, yea, to give themselves up to them and devote almost their whole time to them. Formerly a sort of people were very numerous in the Romish church called recluses, who forsook the world and utterly abandoned the society of mankind and shut themselves up in a close, narrow cell. 
with a vow never to stir out of it, nor to see the face of any of mankind any more, unless that they might be visited in case of sickness, to spend all their days in the exercise of devotion and converse with God. There were also in old time great multitudes called hermits and anchorites that left the world to spend all their days in lonesome deserts to give themselves up to religious contemplations and exercises of devotion, some sorts of them having no dwellings but the caves and vaults of the mountains, and no food but the spontaneous productions of the earth. I once lived for many months next door to a Jew, the houses adjoining one to another, and had much opportunity daily to observe him, who appeared to me the devoutest person that ever I saw in my life, a great part of his time being spent in acts of devotion at his eastern window, which opened next to mine, seeming to be most earnestly engaged, not only in the daytime, but sometimes whole nights. Section 10. Nothing can be certainly known of the nature of religious affections by this, that they much dispose persons with their mouths to praise and glorify God. This indeed is implied in what has been just now observed of abounding and spending much time in the external exercises of religion, and was also hinted before, but because many seem to look upon it as a bright evidence of gracious affection, when persons appear greatly disposed to praise and magnify God, to have their mouths full of his praises, and affectionately to be calling on others to praise and extol him, I thought it deserved a more particular consideration. No Christian will make it an argument against a person that he seems to have such a disposition, nor can it reasonably be looked upon as an evidence for a person of those things that have been already observed and prove be duly considered that persons without grace may have high affections towards God and Christ, and that their affections being strong may fill their mouths and incline them to speak much and very earnestly about the things they are affected with, and that there may be counterfeits of all kinds of gracious affection. But it will appear more evidently and directly that this is no certain sign of grace if we consider what instances the scripture gives us of it in those that were graceless. We often have an account of this in the multitude that were present when Christ preached and wrought miracles, Mark 2.12. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So Matthew 9.8 and Luke 5.26. Also Matthew 15.31. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. So we are told that on occasion of Christ raising the son of the widow of Nain, Luke 7.16, there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. So we read of their glorifying Christ or speaking exceedingly high of him, Luke 6.15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And how did they praise him with loud voices, crying, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. A little before he was crucified. And after Christ's ascension, when the apostles had healed the impotent man, we are told that all men glorify God for that which was done, Acts 4.21. 
when the Gentiles in Antioch of Pisidia heard from Paul and Barnabas that God would reject the Jews and take the Gentiles to be his people in their room, they were affected with the goodness of God to the Gentiles and glorified the word of the Lord. But all that did so were not true believers, but only a certain elect number of them, as is intimated in the account we have of it, Acts 13.48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So of old the children of Israel at the Red Sea sang God's praise, but soon forgot his works. And the Jews in Ezekiel's time, with their mouth showed much love, while their heart went after their covetousness. And it is foretold of false professors and real enemies of religion, that they should show a forwardness to glorify God. Isaiah 66, 5 Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified. It is no certain sign that a person is graciously affected if, in the midst of his hopes and comforts, he is greatly affected with God's unmerited mercy to him, that is so unworthy, and seems greatly to extol and magnify free grace. Those that yet remain with unmortified pride and enmity against God may, when they imagine that they have received extraordinary kindness from God, deplore their unworthiness and magnify God's undeserved goodness to them. Yet this may arise from no other conviction of their ill deservings and from no higher principle than Saul had, who, while he yet remained with unsubdued pride and enmity against David, was brought, though a king, to acknowledge his unworthiness and cry out, I have played the fool, I have heard exceedingly, and with great affection and admiration to magnify and extol David's unmerited and unexampled kindness to him. 1 Samuel 24:16-19 and 26:21, and from no higher principle than that from whence Nebuchadnezzar was affected with God's dispensations that he saw and was the subject of, and praises, extols, and honors the King of Heaven, and both he and Darius in their high affections call upon all nations to praise God. Daniel 3:28-30, and 4:1-3, and 34-37, and chapter 6:25-27. Number 11. It is no sign that affections are right or that they are wrong, that they make persons that have them exceeding confident that what they experience is divine and that they are in a good estate. It is an argument with some that persons are deluded if they pretend to be assured of their good estate and to be carried beyond all doubting of the favor of God, supposing that there is no such thing to be expected in the church of God as a full and absolute assurance of hope, unless it be in some very extraordinary circumstances, as in the case of martyrdom, contrary to the doctrine of Protestants, which has been maintained by their most celebrated writers against the papists, and contrary to the plainest scripture evidence. It is manifest that it was a common thing for the saints that we have a history or particular account of in scripture to be assured. God, in the plainest and most positive manner, revealed and testified his special favor to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Daniel, and others. 
Job often speaks of his sincerity and uprightness with the greatest imaginable confidence and assurance, often calling God to witness to it, and says plainly, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that I shall see him for myself and not another. Job 19.25 David, throughout the book of Psalms, almost everywhere speaks without any hesitancy, and in the most positive manner, of God as his God, glorying in him as his portion and heritage, his rock and confidence, his shield, salvation, and high tower, and the like. Hezekiah appeals to God as one that knew that he had walked before him in truth and with a perfect heart, Second Kings 20. Verse 3, Jesus Christ in his dying discourse with his eleven disciples in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John, which was, as it were, Christ's last will and testament to his disciples and to his whole church, often declares his special and everlasting love to them in the plainest and most positive terms, and promises them a future participation with them in his glory in the most absolute manner, and tells them at the same time, that he does so to the end that their joy might be full. John 15:11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. See also at the conclusion of his whole discourse, chapter 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Christ was not afraid of speaking too plainly and positively to them. He did not desire to hold them in the least suspense. And he concluded that last discourse of his with a prayer in their presence, wherein he speaks positively to his father of those eleven disciples, as having all of them savingly known him, and believed in him, and received and kept his word, and that they were not of the world, and that for their sakes he sanctified himself and that his will was that they should be with him in his glory, and tells his father that he spake those things in his prayer to the end that his joy might be fulfilled in them. Verse 13. By these things it is evident that it is agreeable to Christ's designs, and the contrived ordering and disposition Christ makes of things in his church, that there should be sufficient and abundant provision made that his saints might have full assurance of their glory. The Apostle Paul, through all his epistles, speaks in an assured strain, ever speaking positively of his special relation to Christ, his Lord and Master and Redeemer, and his interest in and expectation of the future reward. It would be endless to take notice of all places that might be enumerated. I shall mention but three or four, Galatians 2.20. Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded, that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, 2 Timothy 4.7 and 8. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And the nature of the covenant of grace and God's declared ends in the appointment and constitution of things in that covenant do plainly show it to be God's design to make ample provision for the saints, having an assured hope of eternal life while living here upon earth. For so are all things ordered and contrived in that covenant, 
that everything might be made sure on God's part. The covenant is ordered and in all things sure. The promises are most full and very often repeated, in various ways exhibited, and there are many witnesses and many seals, and God has confirmed his promises with an oath. God's declared design in all this is that the ears of the promises might have an undoubting hope and full joy in an assurance of their future glory. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the ears of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. But all this would be in vain for any such purpose as the saints' strong consolation and hope of their obtaining future glory if their interest in those sure promises in ordinary cases was not ascertainable. For God's promises and oaths, let them be as sure as they will, cannot give strong hope and comfort to any particular person any further than he can know that those promises are made to him. And in vain is provision made in Jesus Christ that believers might be perfect as pertaining to the conscience, as is signified, Hebrews 9, verse 9, if assurance of freedom from the guilt of sin is not attainable. It further appears that assurance is attainable in ordinary cases and that all Christians are directed to give all diligence to make their calling and election sure and are told how they may do it, Second Peter 1, 5-10. And it is spoken of as a thing very unbecoming of Christians, and an argument of something very blamable in them, not to know whether Christ be in them or no, Second Corinthians 13.5. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? And it is implied that it is an argument of a very blamable negligence in Christians if they practice Christianity after such a manner as to remain uncertain of the reward in 1 Corinthians 9.26. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. And to add no more, it is manifest that Christians should know that their interest in the saving benefits of Christianity is a thing ordinarily attainable, because the Apostle tells us by what means Christians, and not only Apostles and Martyrs, were wont to know this. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. In 1 John 2.3 And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. In verse 5 Hereby know we that we are in Him. Chapter 3.14 We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. Verse 19 Hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Verse 24. Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So chapter 4, 13, and chapter 5, 2, and 19. Therefore, it must needs be very unreasonable to determine that persons are hypocrites and their affections wrong, because they seem to be out of doubt respecting their own salvation, and the affections they are the subjects of seem to banish all fears of hell. On the other hand, it is no sufficient reason to determine that men are saints and their affections gracious, because the affections they have are attended with an exceeding confidence that their state is good, and their affections divined. John Flavel, in his Touchstone of Sincerity, writes, quote, O professor, look carefully to your foundation. 
Be not high-minded, but fear. You have, it may be done, and suffered many things in and for religion. You have excellent gifts and sweet comforts, a warm zeal for God and high confidence of your integrity. All this may be right for aught that I, or it may be you know, but yet it is possible it may be false. You have sometimes judged yourselves and pronounced yourselves upright, but remember your final sentence is not yet pronounced by your judge. And what if God weigh you over again in his more equal balance and should say, Meanie, tackle, thou art weighed in the balance and art found wanting? What a confounded man wilt thou be under such a sentence? Things that are highly esteemed of men are an abomination in the sight of God. He seeth not as man seeth. Thy heart may be false, and thou not know it. Yea, it may be false, and thou strongly confident of its integrity. Nothing can be certainly argued from their confidence, how great and strong soever it seems to be. If we see a man that boldly calls God his Father, and commonly speaks in the most bold, familiar, and appropriate language in prayer, My Father, my dear Redeemer, my sweet Savior, my Beloved, and the like, and it is a common thing for him to use the most confident expressions before men about the goodness of his state, such as, I know certainly that God is my Father. I know so surely as there is a God in heaven that He is my God. I know I shall go to heaven as well as if I were there. I know that God is now manifesting Himself to my soul and is now smiling upon me and seems to have done forever with any inquiry or examination into His state is a thing sufficiently known and out of doubt and to contemn all that so much as intimate or suggest that there is some reason to doubt or fear whether all is right. Such things are no signs at all that it is indeed so, as he is confident it is. Solomon Stoddard writes, Some hypocrites are a great deal more confident than many things. Discourse on the way to know sincerity and hypocrisy, and John Flavel writes, Doth the work of faith in some believers bear upon its top branches the full ripe fruits of a blessed assurance? Lo, what strong confidence and high-built persuasions of an interest in God has sometimes been found in unsanctified ones. Yea, so strong may this false assurance be that they dare boldly venture to go to the judgment seat of God and there defend it. Does the Spirit of God fill the heart of the assured believer with joy unspeakable and full of glory, given him through faith a prelibation or foretaste of heaven itself and those first fruits of it? How near to this comes what the apostle supposes may be found in apostates, in quote, husbandry spiritualized. Such an overbearing, high-handed, and violent sort of confidence as this, affecting to declare itself with the most glaring show on the side of men, although it is to be seen in many, is not the countenance of a true Christian assurance. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero 